Fuckers, and welcome into show notes for episode 68, part three of the Clinton years. Sadly, it wasn't episode 69, as 99 pointed out last week, so we'll find something to look forward to for episode 69 that'll be cool and kitschy. But for now, we're going to review the series that we just finished up, and we got a ton of feedback. Now, before that, though, we do have a quickie this weekend before our two week hiatus, and I just want to go over some of the details because we're not going to leave you high and dry. I mean, Hopefully we'll leave some of you high, but we're not going to leave you high and dry. So first off, for the next couple of weeks, we have a very cool interview with a great friend of the show. Serial unfuckers will know all about this person and recognize this person as a valuable part of this show, as an invaluable part of this show. And uh, I think that's going to be a lot of fun. I think you'll be psyched to hear that one. It's just going to be totally fun, totally loose, totally informative, or totally informal rather. But you'll, you'll dig that. And because we got so much great feedback on this series, we decided to clean it up and release each chapter in a singular episode to make it more shareable. So look forward to that as well. Now, we also reached out for some assistance to keep the feed active while we're away. So we'll be dropping two very special episodes from friends of the show as well. That's all I'm going to say about that. But trust me, you are in very good hands. Then 99 and I will be back mid-month with show notes and we have some great stuff planned the end of summer and into the fall and of course we've got midterms coming up so we'll try and build to a crescendo to see how we do in the midterms now the clinton series seems to have touched a nerve with a lot of people and we're appreciative of the outpouring of emails and messages and we have lots to review today but we know that we're also welcoming a bunch of new unfuckers to the fold as you've told us on social media and through the messages that we received and emails a lot went down over the last week or two so As we welcome our new unfuckers into the fold, here's a quick rundown of what to expect and what we're all about. We are 100% supported by the unfucking community, either through donations and memberships or through the purchase of our unfucking brand of coffee in partnership with the Unkachog Nation members on the Puspatuck Reservation in New York. All of the info that you need can be found on our website, unftr.com. We don't gate any of our content. The shows here and our essays on Substack are all available for free by design. We don't have advertisers yet because we have yet to be approached by advertisers that we believe in and that makes sense for our audience. So we're just purely supported by unfuckers and unfuckers around the globe, might I add. We've got unfuckers down under and Kiwi fuckers, Euro fuckers and Uncanuckers. We've got Maria from Puerto Rico leading the charge with the Boricua fuckers. Elena locking it down in Mexico and listeners from other friends and pods like Best of the Left, David Packman, Pitchfork Economics, and Straight White American Jesus, or Bottle Pack Pitch and Swash Fuckers, if you prefer. We're here to unfuck America, but you can't do it until you know how and why things got fucked in the first place. So, we spend a lot of time looking back and untangling knots to figure out the best way forward. We're unabashedly progressive, but we live by the mantra of meeting people where they are. On social media, the unfuckers have kind of taken over. There's some action on Twitter, and our good friends in Outagamey, led by Wisco celebrity Knudsen, have started a growing group on Facebook called Unfuckers at All. Knudsen curates the feed, and the only rule is that you don't be a dick. And so that's us. I'm your host, Max, joined in studio by my co-host and producer, 99, and a tip of the cap to Manny Faces Behind the Glass who makes everything sound great. Now with that, let's get on with it. 
We're going to start with emails. And the first one is from Grant C., who says, big fan of the show. I was curious if Max would tell us who he voted for in 2016. A person's vote is private, so I respect if he prefers not to, but he has admitted that he voted for Biden in 2020. I thought he might be willing to share. Considering Max's distaste for the Clintons, I have a feeling it might be for Jill Stein, and I wonder, if that's the case, does he regret it? I voted for Gary Johnson. And what is Aleppo? Yes, the Aleppo idiot, and I deeply regret it. I wasn't a fan of Hillary, but expected her to win. I was okay with that because of the disaster that is Donald Trump, but I didn't want to endorse her with my vote. My little personal stand has cost our country immensely as Trump and Trumpism is tearing our country apart. Well, Grant, I voted for Hillary Clinton, and I'm not afraid to say that. I've pretty much revealed, I think, most of my votes uh, going back till when I was able to vote. Did I vote for Bernie in the primary? Hell yeah. And then I held my nose and I voted for Hillary Clinton because I don't think that it's worth throwing a vote away, though I will say that as a New Yorker, it didn't really matter. Clinton was going to sweep the state no matter what. I did not vote for Jill Stein just to put a, uh, a third party vote out there, because one of the things that I have professed in this show is that I am not a believer in third parties. That's not to say that I'm not a believer in rebuilding and recrafting a political environment that changes the direction of the country and that I believe that, of course, that is the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. My hope is that the progressive groundswell will be large enough to overtake the mechanisms of the Democratic Party and use it against the neoliberal machine that has brought us to where we are today. Because we're out of time. We're out of time because it's about a thousand degrees Celsius outside. We're cooking the fucking planet. We simply don't have the time to build the infrastructure for a third party to take over. And as my friend Jay at Best of the Left so brilliantly stated, it's yes, we do not have a parliamentary system here, which is an, a system that encourages and allows for third parties to gain prominence and to as we've seen down under and as we see in Canada to kind of, and Europe as well, to force governments to to be a little more malleable, let's say. So we don't have a parliamentary system, but we do have wings within the party. So there is a conservative, very, let's say, conservative libertarian wing of the Republican Party. You've got the moderate old world Republicans at the classic GOP. You've got your moderate blue dog establishment Democrats represented by the Gottheimer wing of the Democratic Party. You've got your more, let's say, coastal liberal Democrats, and then you've got your progressives. Now, all along that spectrum, it looks kind of parliamentary because to get anything done, you have to negotiate within the caucuses within the caucuses to get any legislation done. So in practical terms, we kind of do have a horse trading log rolling system that encourages alignment on core issues. Yes, we have a fucked up two-party system that has been completely hijacked by conservative forces on both sides. And the progressive caucus isn't always entirely progressive, let's say, as we've seen by the, the Turner and Brown fiasco that happened a couple months ago in Ohio. So anyway, uh, yes, I voted for Hillary Clinton because I do not believe in throwing my vote away. And that's that. Now, uh, moving on, before I bring 99 into the fold here, we have an ego G who said, 
wanted to drop a great job to everyone there. The show is very entertaining, enlightening, and enraging in a good way. Thank you, Inigo G. Inigo goes on to say, if I may make a request, can you guys package that Manny-infused Jackson speech into a video? In my opinion, that's something that needs to be shared everywhere. It's too powerful not to be. 99, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, it's coming. Uh, just been a little swamped lately. Took some time off last week. And, you know, when you take time off and you come back and you're like, well, fuck. <laughs> That's what's happening to me. So I will get there. Hopefully by the time you hear this, it'll be out. Good stuff. How are we going to put that out? What are your thoughts? Probably YouTube. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it'll be on social, but they have limits. So. So. Are you telling me we're going to start a YouTube channel, 99? Is that is that happening? I guess so. Wow. Yeah. You better not give me a camera. I'll just be on YouTube all day. Right? I'm not going to. You're not going to do that. You're not going to let that happen, right? Well, I mean, the camera you have is bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and judging by you the got time, all the cool equipment, the time though. i asked for the camera for this studio and i i didn't get one i don't think you're getting one anytime soon don't you have like a sick setup yeah i over do at your desk mm-hmm. i wouldn't know how to work any of it anyway so yeah I well think i have a um i think he would object to me calling him a sugar daddy but <laughs> <laughs> i have a sugar daddy who bought me a bunch of equipment and it's not max no it's not me. no it's a mysterious benefactor mm-hmm. who who cares about me and has a lot of money at his disposal. There you go. So yeah, video coming out shortly, hopefully by the time you hear this. And if you're hearing this, please go check out that video. You can find it, I guess, on our social feed. Yeah, it'll be everywhere. Don't it'll worry. be everywhere. We'll, we'll put Y'all it out already everywhere. Know. And uh, share it. Share it widely. Now. What does Derek R. have to say? So this is Derek R., I believe, the first. Well, I know it is the first Derek R. we had. Did we call him the Council of Derek's? Yeah. Or is the, that the... They're the Council of Derek's, like the Council of Rick's, but this is Derek R. 1. Derek said, This unfucking has highlighted for me how the Clintons let the wolf into the hen house in regards to the Democratic Party selling out to the moneyed interests. Later, Derek said, The Clintons opened up the Democratic Party to big interest groups and used victories on social issues to convince the middle class they were fighting for them all without actually addressing any kitchen table issues that have been squeezing the middle class for 30 plus years. Even the pandemic couldn't get the Dems to muster any better than Biden and a razor thin majority, which has mansion and cinema killing anything remotely helpful to those in need. We need to vote for progressives on primary day, then carry that energy into November. Here, here, Derek R. That's what I'm talking about. John R. said, just getting caught up on some back episodes I missed along the way, and it occurs to me, That besides the high-profile political assassinations of the 1960s, another thing that cowed establishment Democrats and made them hostile to genuinely progressive left people in the party is the failed George McGovern presidential campaign of 1972 and its aftermath. The popular wisdom is that the 72 campaign represents the farthest left that a U.S. Democratic Party has ever run. And it was such a crushing defeat against a seemingly obvious terrible opponent, Nixon, that the powers that have harshly gatekept and muzzled the left voices ever since. I'm going to come back to the sentiment. I just want to go further into John's rather extraordinary email and say this. I'm definitely disappointed in Joe Biden, but comparing him disfavorably to FDR or LBJ ignores the fact that FDR and LBJ had a supermajority in Congress. Biden has a 50-50 Senate with perennial Benedict Arnolds in the form of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. No amount of presidential leadership, which Joe Biden is surely lacking to be clear, changes that basic math. 
So let's go back up to the top there. This is a very rich email. And John, thank you for sending it in. And let's talk about George McGovern for a second. And let's talk about what was going on in 1972. Because I agree with that assessment in principle that it was one of the more, let's say, leftist campaigns that was run. And it was an absolutely crushing defeat by Nixon. I will take issue with the terrible opponent characterization because as much as we like to kind of lionize the Vietnam-era resistance movement, we have to think about what was going on from 68 to 72 and in the Democratic Party in particular. As we know, the Democratic Convention in 68 was a fucking disaster. It was a shit show, and in it too led to Nixon being elected, although it was a much more competitive race. But Nixon, coming into, into 72, had done a couple of interesting things by that time. He had appeased environmentalists with the EPA and the Clean Water Act. He ran on ending the war in Vietnam, and as of that time, running up to the election, the general public really wasn't aware of the war crimes that Kissinger was facilitating in the background. So Nixon was extraordinarily popular actually heading into that election. And, you know, most people, I think, looking back are kind of surprised, like, you know, so the Watergate fallout was just beginning at the beginning of the election. But Watergate was hadn't fully blossomed. There were a number of news articles, but we weren't fully aware of just how criminal the activities were within the White House. It didn't take long, and it was just an absolute waterfall right after that. But you had the opening of trade relations in China. You had certain environmental protections being put in place. You had him saying that he was going to end the war in Vietnam. We did end conscription, and we were coming out of a rather disastrous time in the late 60s and at the turn of the 70s when it just seemed like all fucking hell was breaking loose and the Democrats were extremely feckless. I'm not sure that any Democratic candidate at the time would have been able to mount a serious challenge. And one of the unfortunate notes of history, in my mind, and exactly to your point, John, is that that was the moment that the Democrats chose to run an extremely progressive campaign under McGovern. The other thing about the McGovern campaign was that it didn't have near the funding or the organization of certainly the well-heeled, well-oiled machine that was the Nixon machine. So they were out fundraised, they were outclassed, they were outmaneuvered on the ground and in the individual states. Like McGovern's organization was known to be historically shitty on the ground. Wonderful idea person, great campaigner from just a singular perspective, but no organizational ability. And coming out of out of 68, the Democrats were really just, I mean, completely against the wall. It's also one of the things that makes Carter, several years later, such a surprise, is that most people didn't think that the Democrats even had it in them and that if a candidate was going to arise, it certainly wasn't going to be from a state like Georgia. It was going to be from some coastal elite state like New York or Massachusetts or California. But I mean, Georgia, a peanut farmer, no less. So there was so much happening with the Democratic Party that the 70s was a lost decade. It was also the beginning 
of the neoliberal framework that really resonated on places like college campuses. So again, we go back in time and we think about college campuses were erupting with the civil rights movement and free speech and the hippies taking over. And yes, some of that was true. But there's a much larger part of the country at the time that was extremely conservative. And you had the older generation still holding on to the World War II mindset, the younger generation agitating against conscription. But then all of that kind of went away. And it looked as though the nation was healing and Nixon was had some you know really strong uh, environmental and economic policies, the beginning of neoliberalism. And he was also the first person that figured out the so-called Southern strategy where he could speak the, the language of racism to woo former Southern de Democrats into the Republican fold. He could speak the language of prosperity through free markets because that's when it really began to take hold. So Nixon captured the American zeitgeist, I think, more than people are willing to give him credit for. And the happenstance, the negative, unfortunate happenstance of George McGovern being at the top of the ticket means that the progressives looked worse than they than they probably were at the time. I think a middle of the road Democrat would have run just as poorly against Nixon because, believe it or not, at, at that election period, he was still at the height of his powers. I mean, it's crazy to think about. But anyway, uh, so super interesting time. I think we should go back and unfuck that period of time because there's so many inflection points and intersections between what we've already done with the birth of the neoliberal movement and the Chicago school taking prominence and ending the Keynesian theories at the time and what was happening with the civil rights movement on the ground with uh, the economics movement and then the very, very nascent stages of globalization. There was so much happening that it makes that, that period of time really important. So thank you for calling that out. Wait, I have a question. Yeah. Is George McGovern Tom's dad? It might be. We should ask him. You know what we should do? What? We should interview him. Hmm. What a good idea. So now let's go to John's second point about being disappointed in Biden, but it not being a fair comparison with FDR and LBJ. I give you that, and I probably should have been more specific. So what John's responding to here is the fact that I have called out Biden's lack of leadership. As compared to juggernauts and giants in the past that were, you know, I, I guess in hindsight, uh, you know, the most lauded progressive individual. So it wouldn't have mattered how progressive one was. If you don't have a supermajority or the ability to control Congress, you're not going to be able to pass legislation. The only caveat that I'll give you there, John, is that here's what we were sold on with Joe Biden. Joe was supposed to be the modern master of the Senate. He'd seen it from all sides, not to the extent that LBJ was, as Bob Carroll called him, the master of the Senate, but to the extent that he was a creature of the Senate and ran on being able to heal the nation and heal the partisanship in Washington to really bridge the gap between the parties, not just bring everyone under the Democratic tent into the fold, but also bringing others into the fold to create make sense reform for the entire country. I mean, that's what he ran on. That was the promise, right? He's fighting for the soul of the nation to heal the divide. And that if he could negotiate and lock arms with somebody at, like Strom Thurmond, 
I mean, that's how long he's been around. Then he had the unique capacity to bridge the divide between the two parties and also had a 50-50 Senate. It's not, you know, it's not like Joe Manchin was a fucking mystery to everybody. What kills me about this period of time is that People were saying that if Biden wins and we have a locked Senate, Joe Manchin will be the most powerful person in Washington. And guess fucking what? It happened, right? But we sort of let it happen. Here's where the leadership piece is missing. If Joe Biden was a leader in the spirit of an LBJ, let's say, then everybody would be cowering in fear of him meddling in the legislative process and he would be twisting arms in the background and he would be embarrassing people and and running things through fear instead of just saying gosh I hope everybody just does this thing and oh okay well we'll give Manchin his due and and I'll try to bring uh, Kirsten Cinema into the fold everybody understands the moneyed interests of these people and everybody understood that they were going to be a block So Congress should be proposing bills every single week. We should be picking these issues off one by one, proposing these bills, and then they should be going on television and running campaigns, talking about how these people killed things that are going to improve your life, and they should be taking out their own people. That's what the Republicans do. And we're so busy looking at the Republicans being like, oh, God, they're such an awful party. But they are a very organized and capable party if you are not walking in lockstep to do their bidding. Now, their bidding happens to be evil because it's all at the behest of some very evil moneyed funders. But we have the same funders on the Democratic side and we just don't call out our own people and we run around like like chickens without heads. We should be browbeating them and he should be angry at them and calling them out. He has a feckless vice president who, even in recent reporting this this week, there's been a lot of articles and you can go to the New York Times and see how they don't even involve Kamala Harris in any decision making process. She's met with Tony Blinken once and her specialty, even though she has no experience in it, is supposed to be in making these global trips and, and running all around the world. And she's only had a couple of trips. They've been a disaster and she's not even communicating with Blinken. So there's no organization in the, among the cabinet members. There's no organization in the White House. We're not holding any of these senators or, you know, these influential Congress people to account. He's not twisting any arms like he said he would. And he's certainly not healing any divide. So you can, I don't think it's OK to just say, well, it's just a 50-50. The point is it's 50-50 and he's got the tie-breaking vote and he should be beating the fuck out of anybody that isn't going the way that he needs them to if we're going to take these elections in the midterms. It almost seems like the White House has just resigned to losing the midterms, licking their chops, hoping everything you know turns to shit and that they can blame the Republicans as their way out. Because other than that, I can't really discern a strategy. And it is, I mean, there is not a publication that covers the Beltway that has not observed that, and that's publication, podcast, right-wing media, left-wing media, that has not observed that this is the laziest White House that we have seen in a long time. This White House is as lazy and disincentivized as the Trump White House was chaotic and evil. I mean, and and so that's what we're dealing with. That's the lack of leadership. I refuse to believe that if Bernie Sanders was in that position, 
that he would not be, I mean, wrestling things through the Senate and and forcing everybody to just go his way. So those are my feelings on that. Thank you, John. Great stuff. Now, what do we got from Craig? Craig said, thank you so much for the Clinton deep dive. I think Robert Reich was mentioned a few times during the series, and I'm wondering if you can expand on whether he was part of the problem, and if so, how? Currently, the content he puts out on social media seems to be pretty progressive and seems to be in line with the UNFTR platform. So I'm curious to understand more about Reich's role during the Clinton years. Yeah, Reich is an interesting figure because he was an early friend of Clinton. I think they met because they were both Rhodes Scholars. And he was a, a big part of drafting a lot of his economic programs for the campaign, kind of being the progressive part of the new Democrats. Now, Reich was a believer in what he called Sunrise Industries and funding tech companies and kind of understood that NAFTA was going to supplant the manufacturing base in the United States. Remember, NAFTA was passed by Clinton, but it was proposed under Bush. NAFTA was almost a fait accompli by the time the Clinton uh, White House came into power. So I think it was assumed across the board that we were going to open up trade agreements with Canada and Mexico and that a lot of the manufacturing base was going to ultimately move below the border. I'm not excusing it, just laying out the facts on the ground as it, as, as it was at the time. So Reich was a believer that we needed to lean into the open markets and free market world that was developing, but that we needed to seed industries here, particularly what he called Sunrise Industries, which was basically the tech sector, and then use any gains that were made economically to undergird social safety nets and programs as the country transitioned from an old world economy into a high tech and service economy. So if anything, Rice was sort of like the practical voice who kind of saw where things were going and was trying to mitigate it. Now, again, I'm not excusing Rice's I guess, worldview at the time, because it was decidedly what we would frame now as neoliberal to the extent that he was leaning into the concept of free markets and, and trade agreements and globalization. But like we've talked about with Adam Smith before, as the founder of capitalism, he believed that any surplus capital, whether in the form of human capital or excess capital within the system, should be reinvested to undergird the economy for social safety nets, education, welfare, art, and the like. Reich wound up being tapped for Secretary of Labor. And as such, he found himself in kind of a precarious position in the Clinton years because he was trying to get these initiatives off the ground to train and retrain labor within the United States to move into this new environment. But then the other Robert, Robert Rubin, was really instrumental in pulling the rug out from under all of the programs that Reich wanted to develop for retraining, but then also subsidizing welfare at the time. So I, I think Reich was largely respectful of the Clinton administration because he had to play within it was only in a position to kind of manage labor as the Secretary of Labor, but understands distinctly now that those neoliberal models wound up failing the working class and extending inequality in the nation. And I think he's, it's, I don't want to characterize his post-Clinton White House years as like a 20-year apology tour, but that's kind of how I see it because 
He knew at the time that this would increase inequality and that the government had to step in. And just last thing I'll say on Reich is notably, he was also a proponent of running deficits, especially as the country transitioned. So he was a Keynesian from the standpoint that he thought that a budget surplus would be a bad thing. And that's ultimately what we wound up with and ultimately what contributed to, in, to the growing inequality. So Reich understood that and he was the only one kind of yelling that in the White House at the time. So he was a good person who kind of had the best understanding of where we were where we were going and the potential uh, downsides of moving forward in a global economy, yet not, I guess, didn't have the wherewithal or the heft or the loudest voice in the room to be able to curtail the worst aspects of that neoliberal policy. And, you know, we ran a surplus, we grew inequality, and as you heard in the three-part series, we really fucked the poor and the working class, particularly black and brown Americans who uh, just kind of had the rug pulled out from under them after the civil rights era. So great question. And I'm a big fan of Robert Reich today and everything that he's kind of done since then. And uh, sadly, he just wasn't as influential as he could have been. Now, William N. wrote in, said, as we're discussing midterm elections coming up on the horizon and voting for progressive candidates, or in some cases, candidates that are slightly more palatable than the alternative, I'd like to present to my fellow Tennessee unfuckers, Democratic gubernatorial candidate J.B. Smiley Jr. From what I can tell, he seems to be very in touch with the current social justice issues surrounding wage inequality, women's rights, and more. And also, Bill Lee needs to go. Uh, so full disclosure, William N., I am not literate when it comes to Tennessee politics, but uh, to the extent that unfuckers can have some sort of discussion and discourse about this, uh, please do let me know your thoughts on J.B. Smiley and William N.'s take that he is uh, really the progressive candidate that we should be following. William also said, I don't recall if you guys have touched on this in an episode or not, but it'd be really good to get a full unfucking at some point on the Battle of Blair Mountain, the coal miner strikes in the early 1900s to open the eyes of places like Kentucky and eastern Tennessee to their progressive roots. I love that idea. Great call, William N., uh, Battle of Blair Mountain, among a number of other uprisings from, I, I would say, the late 1800s into the early 1920s in, in that industrial era, is it's a really rich time to be able to pull from. So you had, you had manufacturing strikes in the Northeast. You had the Blair Mountain strike, of course, the coal strike. We had the rail car strikes that we covered in our trade union episode. Uh, so lots of good stuff to unpack there. And uh, I think we'll definitely dig into it. You know what? Maybe we'll do... William, is Will, I was thinking about putting something together for Labor Day, even though I don't like really doing timely drops like that. I think we're overdue on a follow-up episode to to uh, unions, uh, especially because we spent a little bit of time uh, unpacking the Chris Smalls. What episode was that that we talked about uh, Christian Smalls? Amazon part two. Yes, Amazon part two. Thank you. So I think I think it's a high time for an update on trade unions and labor unions. So maybe we'll do that then. Thank you, William. Now on to Matthew H. What do we got? Ninety nine. Matthew said, I just wanted to comment on the discussion regarding Jesse Jackson from someone born and raised in the South. I'm not quite as ancient as Max, but hey. I've seen my doctor about scheduling a colon screening. <laughs> I was raised to think a certain way about men like Jesse Jackson and MLK Jr. as well. 
the books that performed character assassinations on both men and highlighted their infidelities rather than their political and social platforms were the prevailing narrative in our community. My journey towards progressive ideals started in college, but still took decades to truly emancipate my politics from the Republican Party. I'm reminded of the Oliver... So this is a little later in the email. Matthew says, I'm reminded of the Oliver Stone docuseries, The Untold History of the United States, in which he opines for the possibility of a President Gore who would have responded differently to 9-11, or if Henry Wallace wasn't replaced by Harry Truman on FDR's ticket in the DNC of 1944, we may have never dropped the bomb on Japan. It really is amazing to think of how those in power shape the narrative around candidates to the point that people will vilify decent, honest people over truly reprehensible ones. Anyway, just wanted to give a different perspective from someone raised in the midst of the racism and division that Jesse Jackson was also born into and how he was not given fair treatment even by Southern Democrats back then. Love the show, love to 99, and Manny the Maestro. That's great stuff. So I grew up in New York, went to a very liberal college, have obviously studied and written about politics my entire professional career now. And I still... I think got more of the same treatment that is being described here, which is I learned more about the frailties, let's say, of the Jesse Jacksons, the Al Sharptons, the MLKs of the world than I did about their policies. And I'm in a liberal environment. There's something about the treatment of black Americans and the cultural norm and mainstream even among perceived liberals, where it's always couched in a, but was also a not a great person. Whereas, you know, white people just seem to get a different treatment. Like, what, <laughs> I remember there's a book called The Kennedy Men that I read a number of years ago. From the opening page to the closing page, I was just, I was horrified by the actions of these, of these people. But, I mean, they are, they were, not good men. I mean, to a person, it's like every fucking single one of them did horrible things, right? And yet, it was Camelot. And the the white media wanted to portray it the way it wanted to portray it. Boys will be boys. Right. What was so interesting about the Clinton years was, to me, and what made that series so fascinating to put together, was that Clinton came of power and came of age in a time that... The media was willing to criticize, openly criticize his sexual behavior, right? And obviously, the way it all went down kind of changed the way I think presidents are, were covered ever since then. And now we have a, we just had a president who openly slept with porn stars cheating on his wife while she was pregnant and then paying them off with hush money and then nothing happened to him. So, I mean, it's just... It's, it's, it's amazing how far down we've traveled since that time. And yet, there are pockets of Democrats willing to promote the Clinton years as good years, even though. And Republicans willing to still say, yeah, Trump was this scumbag, but he had policies I really liked and admired. And yet, no one in the white media class on either side can seem to go back and revisit the policies and the actions of somebody like Jesse Jackson, who worked his entire life to lift people up and lift them out of poverty. Did he make bad decisions? Did he say stupid things every once in a while? Was he, uh, was, was he also charged with infidelity? Yes, all of that stuff. But it's just, 
if you're black in this in this country, it will negate all of that good work. Which brings me to Obama and that argument that he had to be perfect. And it's still so interesting to me that, again, unfuckers know I'm not a fan of his presidency, of the, the administration's policies. I saw it as part of a Republican continuum since the 1970s. But he had to be faithful, had to be logical, had to be reasoned, not show any emotion or anger or passion. He had to be totally steady, Eddie, calm, cool, collected. It was like he, he it was the only thing, the only black American that would have been acceptable in that position of power was a Barack Obama who had to check all of those boxes. And when all of those boxes were checked, the right wing media still tried to drag him through the mud for wearing a tan suit. It's incredible. But again, the Democrats will look at that period of time, lionize Obama to the same extent because of all those boxes that he checked and said, look, he was the perfect upstanding citizen and then completely ignore the failings of his administration when it came to lifting up the poor, making things better for black and brown Americans, for charging journalists with the Espionage Act for murdering American citizens abroad, for dropping drone strikes on seven countries that we had, didn't have uh, declarations of war in, and on and on and on and on. So neither side talks about that because the, the right won't talk about that because they love that shit. The left won't talk about it because eh, it's not important because at least he was faithful to Michelle. And the same thing with Clinton. The Democrats don't want to talk about they're like, well, it was it was a boom time era for us. The economy was amazing. So at least he was a really good president if he was a shitty person. And the, and the Republicans don't want to talk about how great the economy was during that time because they have, it, they have so much to talk about for what a shitty person he was. And so everybody just loses the plot and doesn't talk about what they should be talking about, which is what we covered in the series. Fascinating, fascinating shit. And so our what if moment was what if Jesse Jackson had gotten out there and actually been the choice of the ticket and everybody had gone around the progressive vision. Might he have won? I don't know. But just like Matthew's proposing here, there were so many what-if moments throughout history that could have changed things in such a demonstrable way that it kind of hurts your heart to think about it. And so what's what's the lesson in unfucking the Republic? What's well, to kind of do the math? And uh, something that we're going to talk about this weekend it's to do the math going forward and to ask yourself, well, all of these other times we played it safe and we didn't risk anything because we were so afraid that we were going to lose the, the power structure and, and, and lose the keys to the castle, even if, the, even if the, the floor is crumbling within the castle. But Joe Biden isn't running in the midterms. The midterms are all about who you want in Congress. That's where we need to focus our energy because that will help us determine who the next president is. And it ain't going to be Joe Biden and it ain't going to be Donald Trump. So we have to lay the groundwork today during the midterms. This isn't a referendum on Joe Biden. It's a referendum on what the, on the country that we want to see. And we have a what if moment coming up. Anyway, we'll talk more about that later. But I appreciate this email and I appreciate uh, where everybody's going and, and the lessons that are being picked up on from these prior administrations and how we can apply them going forward. Now, Tomasz said, unfucker from Central Europe, Poland to be exact. First of all, wanted to say that I'm very thankful for the amazing podcast you guys produce. Thank you. Max, you have an amazing voice for running a podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tomasz. 
Shout out to Manny and 99 as well. 99, the Polish kitchen has many options for vegans. How about that? I see now here, I thought it was just all about like Polish sausage and shit like that. I didn't. Yeah, I don't. I mean, are pierogies Polish? I don't know. There's a place in, in the city, or is it in Brooklyn, called Warsaw? Have you ever been there? Mm-mm. It's like an old Polish hall or like a dance hall. It's a very strange place. They have concerts there now, but then they have this like sidebar and like they literally serve like pierogies and like kielbasa out of the side. It's just it was for for <laughs> me and 101, two vegans, it was kind of our nightmare. <laughs> All right. Well, you have to take Tomasz's word for it that they have some some veggie options. Yeah, you. I'm sure in actual Poland, not this place <laughs> that is. Uh, and it's funny, my friends, I guess a band we like is playing there. And I was like, oh, me, me and my sister have been there. It's fucking weird. They're like, that place is great. They've got pierogies. And I was like, two different types of people. So there you go. <laughs> that's my experience, Tomas. Well, Tomas continues with your last episode gave me a feeling of hope. The Democrats can embrace a new politics of compassion. Unfortunately, I'm afraid that big change requires a big defeat first. Hmm. They need to feel the urge to change. 1980s, Poland was on the opposing side of the Iron Curtain. So we never heard about Jesse Jackson. From the civil rights movement, we only learned about Martin Luther King. I see you have a bookshop. Could you please recommend some books for someone who is interested in U.S. politics? And finally, do you ship your coffee and books to the EU? And how much does it cost? So on the coffee side, we do not, sadly. But thank you for asking. On the book side, I imagine that is doable through bookshop.org UNFTR. Yeah, so they basically have partnerships with independent bookstores all over the world so it's not any more expensive than us because we're we're just an affiliate of bookshop so if you go to the bookshop.org slash shop slash unftr pod mm-hmm. then you can buy anything from the list and it'll pick it'll it'll ship from poland not from Very new york cool. yeah okay neat uh as far as book recommendations this is like asking who my favorite children are but For a primer on the whole thing, I will say I picked four. People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. It's a lot, but it is definitely, in my opinion, the best way to learn about American history. Democracy in Chains by Nancy McLean, I think is a really, uh, that's one that we covered pretty recently, the story of James Buchanan and the real birth of the neoliberal movement. She just did a great job. It's it's excellent prose, and, and I appreciate her work there. Dark Money by Jane Mayer. Unfuckers could probably recite that by heart because I've said it so, so many times. And The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. The reason I include that is because contrary to what the conservative media likes to say here and likes to promote, our history is the history of racism. And you can view almost every tributary policy through the lens of racism and understand why things are the way they are. Those are four foundational books that I think will give you a pretty good idea. It's also going to give you not the greatest view and perspective of America, but it's honest. And it it explains a lot as to how we've arrived at where we are. So there you go. And thank you for the year of fucking love. Great to hear from you. And I think that was it for our episode specific emails. But here are a few general ones. The first one is from Lynn H. Also about bookshop. So Lynn said... Referencing the book Jamming at the Margins, Jazz and the American Cinema. I love both, but I was surprised it was a book recommendation. Cool. So that's actually in the shop because it was written by our own unfucking overcaffeinated member, Cringy. Love Crin. Who you heard on the Hollywood 
wartime movie title, whatever it was. I don't remember. The Hollywood Industrial Complex? Yeah. I can't remember what it was. Yeah, something like that. But Crin featured on that, so I linked all of his books. And uh, I actually can I can see what people order on the dashboard. I can't see who ordered it, but I did see someone buy it. So I wonder if it was you, Lynn H. And if so, send your review to Crin. That's awesome. Yeah. Crin's such a good friend of the show. He's been there since uh, since the beginning with us. I just love having his voice in that particular episode because he added such gravitas and cachet to it. It was it was wonderful. We're going down under now. Rafe Raff from Down Under said, anyway, good news overall that labor looks like they intend to set the right course, but they're gearing up for a potential fight with the Greens and the climate independence on their weak 43% by 2030 climate target, which just makes my skin crawl because that's the sort of stuff that kicked off the climate wars a decade ago that set us back for such a long time. So Rafe Raff is talking about the election down under, the fact that uh, Anthony Albanese is in power now and kind of the new direction that's going to take hold. But Albanese has his work cut out for him because he has to, again, put together a coalition government. And there is a much larger representation from the Green Party that portends good things, but the Labor Party clearly trying to dial that back a little bit. So really interesting take there, Rafe Raff. He continues with, anyway, I wanted to give a shout out to you, 99. Oh, really? Because I feel like sometimes when Max says something egregious and I want to correct him, you jump in and say exactly the thing that I want to say, i.e. the fucking stadiums. So thanks for being such a dedicated millennial to the cause on this show. This fellow millennial appreciates your efforts and hard work. I'm also super appreciative of your efforts on inclusive language. Thanks, Rafe Raff. It's good stuff right there. And I also want to tip my hat to Manny. I listen to quite a few podcast shows. There's always glitches, audio quality issues, or cuts that went wrong and were left there. I can't recall one time that that's happened on UNFTR. And on top of that, your work massively contributes to the audio identity of the show. And one last note from Ray Fraff. Trump loves ketchup. Just saying. God damn it. That came out at literally the perfect time. That Trump fucking threw his ketchup plate at the know, wall. I know, I know. That's not great for me. Yeah. Not great. But we, we also figured out that there are more ketchup fuckers in the world, so we win. Yeah. Rafe Raff, I wonder if we listen to the same podcast because there's this show that I love and I've talked about it on this show before, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna disparage it. But it's like every fucking episode, there's some sort of like duplicate clip or it just goes silent. And they have, this is a big fucking team in a big studio. Mm. It's every episode recently. Seriously? In multiple series. And I tried it on different podcast players because I was like, okay, maybe my app's glitching out. Nope. Unacceptable. I know. Manny Faces would never. No, he would never. Never in a million years. Well, thank you, Rafe Raff. Thanks for catching us up on some Down Under politics. Let's go over to Chris B. Chris P. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sort of. Sort of. Because it's a B, not a P. Right. Chris said, you've been an incredible resource in helping to articulate what has almost become a blind rage regarding the unjust structures in our society. I'm not great at staying in the conversation with the UNFTR community. This message to you guys has been brewing in me for a while. While I understand the concerns about the amount of content the separate show notes episodes add, I love the conversations Max and 99 have. Mm-hmm. In particular, a conversation back in June really resonated with me. I can't remember the context, but 99 made an impassioned argument for advocating and supporting people who have lifestyles vastly different from your own. I don't remember that. 
I feel like that's the opposite. I'd be like, no, everyone needs to be the same. No, you are. <laughs> you are the voice of the people. <laughs> Chris says, you guys have helped me challenge many narratives in my life that in some cases felt wrong, but couldn't put words to or didn't even understand how deep the mind fuck went. And then, oh, here's some some more Clinton love. When it comes to the latest episode you guys put out, I don't think I ever heard Jesse Jackson's name. Listening to his convention speech was moving. It was fiery, passionate, making me want to scream and weep at the same time. Lately, I've been changing up the language I've been using in conversations about political leaders nationally and locally to reflect a broader perspective than just the United States. I've been referring to progressive candidates as center-left, conservative, corporate Democrats as center-right, and most of your bog-standard Republicans? Hmm. What is bog? I don't know. Maybe big standard or bog? I don't know. Bog or big standard Republicans as right or far right, depending on the depths of depravity they sink to. What do you think about this approach? Am I pissing into the wind in the hopes it hits someone's face? Or is this a constructive way to take back the narrative from the right? I don't think there's a bad way to approach. First of all, thank you for writing in. I think this is um, you hit on a lot of great subjects and topics here with respect to how to characterize where people stand on certain issues. It really it's very tricky. And I don't think there's a right or a wrong approach to it. I like to approach things as I meet them, depending upon the situation that I'm in. So often it really depends on what that person's perspective is and what that person, if you're, let's just say in a debate, what they consider to be right or or, or left. Most of the people I come in contact with or most of the media I consume or most of the discourse that I see that's at least allowed out in the mainstream media focuses on this division between the left and the right. And what is considered the left, in my opinion, isn't isn't left. The, the true progressive left is still, in most discourse, written off entirely as being bonkers. Just totally bizarre. And, and think about how AOC is described in the media. And then imagine a white Republican man advocating for the same things. And all of a sudden, it wouldn't sound as bizarre in the way that people frame it. We really do... We cast our own images onto the people saying certain things, which is another reason why our identities, for example, are behind the microphone. And we don't really choose to put our own persona or identities out there because people will automatically ascribe a certain vision or a certain way of thinking based upon their belief system of how we present in the world. So... In every single situation, I, I don't know that there's a good hard and fast rule of how to characterize where somebody sits on the spectrum or what, whether an idea is progressive or it's center right or center left or, or hard right. I think we, if anything, we need to tune and train ourselves to just be issue specific and take them one by one. So we talked a lot about this actually in how to talk about the Trump years, right? And how to address a Trump supporter. If we allow the conversation to lean into identity politics, where we start to frame where, what our worldview and position is right out of the gate, then there's going to be certain assumptions that are hard to deliberate. But if you try to move away from those type of labels and just go issue specific, there's a lot more common ground to be found there. So I'm going to say whatever works for you to be able to have these more productive conversations, so long as you're steering them away from core identities and steering into what makes sense from a policy perspective in the world that we live in today, assuming that we're all trying to achieve the same end goal, which is less inequality, 
a better, healthier planet, people feeling safe and secure in their homes, on the street, in the classroom, people having rights and dignity, people being able to achieve healthier lives and ergo access to health care that is affordable. All of these things that are essentially basic civil organizing principles that make a good society, if those are the end game, then you could talk about the issues, I think, a, a little more productively without getting caught in, in identity politics. Anyway, thank you for writing in. We appreciate that. Moving on to Jesse T. Here's my question and idea, potentially an offer should you deem it worthwhile. Have you ever considered creating a version of your Substack content that edits out any, quote, objectionable language to make it easier to share with folks on the far right? If you haven't, please do. I know it sounds silly, but these ideas should stand for themselves and swearing shouldn't get in the way. But as someone who used to be deeply religious and who understands the mindset of a true believer, using this sort of language is counterproductive in attempting to win hearts and minds from the other side of the aisle, which I believe your content would otherwise be uniquely able to do. So, Jesse, this is something that I've wrestled with. And I had somebody that I that I love and, and admire tell me very early on, unfucking the republic will get you further than you thought if you're anonymous. But unfucking the republic will ultimately hold you back from where you want to get to. So speaking about the language, the tone, the tenor of the conversations that we have, that unfucking the republic would probably create some sort of artificial ceiling for us to reach a wider audience. And so I contemplated that for quite some time and I deliberated and I agree to an extent, although we have yet to find the ceiling because our numbers grow seemingly every month and and most people in this society are able to look past the name and some of the naughty language that we use within. But you should be able to detect a slight change in tone and approach for, for the show over the last year and a half. Maybe it's because things are getting a little bit more serious. Maybe it's because the fact that we do have a much larger audience now, I'm, I'm more sensitive to the language that I try not to be as loose with the language as I was before, but maintain the outrage and to use it when it's appropriate. I curse, you know, like it's like it's breathing in my normal everyday life. So it's hard for me to dial that back anyway. But I get what you're saying about the writing aspect of it. I don't have a clear answer for you other than I hear you. I'm not sure how many deeply far right religious people I would win over with my arguments without cursing to begin with, nor am I sure that's my job at this moment. Yeah. Because there's so much misinformation and learning yet to be done in coalescing on the left that I'm not yet leaning into trying to, as much as I try to meet people where they are, I'm not trying to necessarily change hearts and minds on the hard Christian white nationalist strain of this country. Uh, I'm trying to defeat them, if anything. So, but I don't want to minimize what you're saying because it's important. So there are older listeners that have written in and said, hey, I got past your language and this is actually a really good show. But that implies that there are more people that don't get past the language and, and discount what we're going to say because they're just not, it probably looks like I'm trying too hard to be outrageous. And I totally get that. And that's why that person that I know and love at the very beginning said, yeah, you're you're going to get some attention. You know, it's 
it's a very cool title and the coffee is even funny like the whole packaging and brand like i fucking get it it's awesome but there are people who are just not hardwired that way that aren't even going to give you the opportunity to change their minds who might naturally be on your side so i could eliminate all of the curse words in in the prose and yet the title of the show is on fucking the republic so i i just i don't know how much gain there would be yeah and also it's just it would be inauthentic to who we are yeah i curse a lot this but this it's it's how we talk it's how we express ourselves like you said you're trying not to make it gratuitous but i probably say fuck like 800 times a day yeah. <laughs> i don't know i, I don't know it's it just that was the word i was searching for i try not to make it gratuitous anymore and i felt like i was a little gratuitous in the beginning I mean, I didn't, I knew it was, you know, some shock value and to use a lot of fun words to describe people. Like, yeah. I can't stop calling Uncle Dick Knock and, and Uncle Fuck Nugget. Some of the Uncle, ones you have right? for him are just gross. Yeah. Like, like I don't. Knuckle. I, I just don't <laughs> like reading. Like, that's actually where you get me. I'm like, ew, that's gross. But it would just be inauthentic to ourselves and our brand and the way we we go about our lives and tell our messages. Like, even though we're anonymous, at the end of the day, you're telling the story and you're writing it from your lens. You try not to put bias on it, but like we are intrinsically biased as Absolutely. all people are. So I don't know. I Again, I, just like Max, I see you, Jesse. I, I can't see it being in our future, though. You're being more diplomatic than I am because it's just you're right. It's well, it, not it's our not job. Even, it's not even diplomacy. It's like be the change you want to see in the world. Like I go back and I look at like I'm infatuated with the 60s and the 70s and I go back and I look at, do I want to be Gore Vidal or Abby Hoffman? And there are some days I wake up and I just want to go full fucking Abby Hoffman. And there are some days I want to wake up and be as erudite as a Gore Vidal. But I'm just Max. I'm just- Most people curse too. <laughs> Gore Vidal wouldn't, wouldn't lower himself to- Maybe to not that in public. Certainly not in public, but our yeah, so our public facing persona is, as 99 says, it is authentically an expression of who we are. So I, I think that is a great place to land, by the way, that that to change that would be inauthentic. That just wouldn't be us. Yeah. And it's not about us, the people. But if we're telling the story, yeah. you have to follow that a little bit. Otherwise, what's the point? You make changes for the audience based on audience feedback, but we still have to sort of do the content the way we do the content. I am curious though, and Jesse, not to belabor this, but I'm very curious to understand your journey and how you went from that place to this place. So one of my favorite things about Unfucking the Republic, uh, it was, it's funny, I was just talking about Unforking this. Unforking the Republic? Unforking the Republic. I was just talking about this last weekend with my dad. I was saying to him, one of my favorite things is how much feedback we get from retired military veterans. I mean, it's to me, it's an overwhelming amount because, and, and rather unexpected. I didn't, I, in my mind's eye, had most service members being more conservative, more rah-rah, wave the flag. So I, I was I was putting my own shit on them, Right. And I'm not saying it was just part of my belief system that, you know, if you ever served in the military, that you are, you know, you, the natural proclivity is to be on the right. But that was the kind of the general framework that I held in my mind. So many veterans have written in 
and saying that, you know, they went through a journey, but they ju- they got there differently. And maybe they started out a certain way, but they're true believers in, in democracy and American ideals and freedom, but were disenchanted with the Republican Party, the conservative mainstream, some maybe some of the indoctrination tactics that were used to get them to where they were and how they went on a journey that's very different from a lot of us because they see shit that the rest of us just do not. And that stuff can break you or it can build you. And I'm fascinated by how many of them have written into us to say, it's taken me a long time to get here, but I'm learning a lot from this and keep it up. I was a combat veteran. I served in in Iraq or I served in Afghanistan or I'm a Vietnam veteran or what have you. And here's how I got here. So Jesse, what I don't get as much of is people who were formerly on the so-called religious right, who are still religious people, but leaned into progressivism. And it's one of the reasons I was so fascinated to do the show with Brad from Straight White American Jesus. Let's talk about, hey, where's the, where is the Christian left? And it turns out the Christian left is out there, but there are a lot of the Christian left that started on the right and wound up using their faith to progress left. And so anyway, long story short, I am curious to understand what got you there? Because I doubt it was just language, right? I doubt it was just whether there was naughty language or not, right? So I'm, I'm curious what can reach you and, and if there's anything we can we can glean from that. I'm sure it says fuck in the Bible, right? Oh, absolutely. But backwards. Mm. Mm-hmm. Kiss of... <laughs> it's like the guy yeah. in Twin Peaks. Oh, I love that show. God, I love Twin Peaks. I don't think we've ever talked about Twin Peaks. Were you a Twin Peaks head? I mean, I was quite young when it originally aired. You must have been. I was young. I, well, I've seen it and I've seen, you know. Did you watch the reboot? No. Well, not the reboot, the continuation. No, 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 no I did not. You should. It's disturbing really? and bizarre and weird and good. But, I mean, nothing's going to beat season one, obviously. But, yeah. But, you know, he, he talks backwards. Oh, yeah. 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 That's... The little person, right? Yeah. Talks backwards, yeah. Yeah. That gummy like is coming back in style. That might not have been him, though. That might have been the really tall guy. I can't remember. No, it was the little person. We said that? The, yeah. Well, I'm yeah. saying that specific quote. Oh. Oh, I don't know. Oh. Okay. I think there's a curse on Twin Peaks, like The Exorcist, because, like, so many actors keep dying. Not even old people. Oh, no. I know. It's- Kyle McLaughlin's still alive, isn't no, he? No, of course. Okay. He's still alive. Come on. Don't right. do that to me. The movie, there was a movie though, right? Yeah. Twin Peaks movie? I remember liking that a whole lot. Yeah, Firewalk With Me. Yes. It's like a prequel sequel. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the soundtrack was devastating. That I remember at the time yeah. too. Yeah, it's, it's, I love Twin Peaks. Yeah. Wow. Look at us. common. Tell me about what Chip Williams had to say. Yeah, we're on Facebook now. Ooh. We're switching over. So the the track will switch. Manny will <laughs> put drop the needle down. We had some good feedback on the Clinton episode. So Chip said, I really can't begin to say how amazing this whole series is. The, the work of Michelle Alexander is so important, and I found another work worth mentioning. Golden Gulag, Prison, Surplus, Crisis, and Opposition in Globalizing California by Ruth Wilson Gilmore. And another book Chip recommends is Caught by Marie Gottschalk. So it's the subheading is The Prison State and the Lockdown of American Politics. And it draws connections that show how the problem of the carceral state moved beyond the prison cell because of the extensiveness of the penal system, which evolved to change how governing institutions and public services 
such as elections, schools, and public housing operate. That's interesting. One of the, the stats that's most often quoted is how the United States has 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's incarcerated population. Now, I think it's important to distinguish between being behind bars and being incarcerated. They're, they're not always the same thing. Incarcerated means that you are behind bars, but if you are in the system and an incarcerated person, you might be on probation, you might be on parole, you might be awaiting charges. So you, it means you're caught up in the system. So when we say that 5% of our population, it means 5% of this population's quote, in the system. But being in the system means that you are excluded from certain rights in some states, it's voting rights in some states, it's, or in most states, it's it's housing or it's vouchers or, or some sort of subsidies and welfare. And that is one of the biggest legacies of the Clinton era that it was so punitive to people that have theoretically, you know, paid their debt to society one way or the other, or maybe they were even put into the system through really no fault of their own. And that's not going back and there's great old clips of Biden, well, horrifying clips of Biden in the Senate talking about, I don't care what your backstory was or what made you a criminal or put you where you are. We got to deal with you today. We can't deal with your past. And these people need to be punished. He was fucking brutal through the 80s and the 90s and very much the author of that crime bill, whether he wants to walk away from it or not. So when we talk about people swept up into the system, you're talking about people that couldn't afford to pay a parking ticket or couldn't afford to pay some sort of fine. We're not not, a, not even necessarily felonies or a low-level drug offense. And then they can't pay the fines associated with it. And then they get caught up in the system. Maybe they're even in a holding cell. And then they lose their apartment. And then they lose their job. And then they lose their welfare benefits. That's what getting caught up in the system can and has done to people and why it has been so fucking devastating. So We'll put these books into our bookshop as recommendations for sure, but it really is important. It's very hard to get a foundation for how devastating this has been if you're not checking in and doing the work that Michelle Alexander, for one, has done, and apparently some of these other authors as well, to really talk about how devastating and in totality it was to so many people. And of course, 80 to 90% of the people that were caught up in all of the issues that were created in the 1990s were black and Hispanic Americans. It's just it's just devastating. Manny, why don't you punch in and toot your newsbeat horn? Y'all over there have done a ton of work. That's the truth. Go for it. Hey, don't mind if I do. So Newsbeat is a social justice podcast that mixes high-level journalism with music and very often original lyrical contributions by brilliant, compelling, independent hip-hop artists. So it's a mix of interviews with experts and analysts and activists and those who have been directly affected by injustice mixed with music, much how this podcast has a musical underbelly throughout. And then we very often include original lyrical contributions from brilliant independent hip-hop artists to punctuate the issues that we're discussing in that particular episode, written specifically for that episode. Picture it as Democracy Now! and Black Thought from the Roots had a podcast baby. Or, if you don't know who Black Thought from the Roots is, Hamilton. We've been doing it for a few years. We're currently the New York Press Club Journalism Podcast of the Year, meaning that we beat out, I don't know if you've heard of these outlets, uh, New York Times, was it Wall Street Journal? Yeah, Wall Street Journal. Anyway, we're really, really good. Now, 
to give you a quick synopsis of some of the topics we talk about, I'm just going to read some of the latest episodes. Racism Kills, Segregation's Role in the Buffalo Massacre. Fusion Centers, Your Shadowy Neighborhood Spy Hubs. Disaster Capitalism, Making Money from Misery. Grifter's Paradise, Capitalism's Destruction of Afghanistan. From Slave Patrols to Ahmaud Arbery, The Racist Legacy of Citizens' Arrest Laws. Racist AI, Facial Recognition and Wrongful Arrests. Voter Suppression in the Era of a Weekend Voting Rights Act. And of course, tons more episodes along those lines, including our award-winning episodes, Say Her Name, Confronting 400 Years of State Violence Against Black Women, and Why We Riot, Institutionalized Inequality, Racism, and Oppression. Basically, a look at civil uprisings throughout American history. So, uh, this is just a small smidgen, a tidbit, a minute, minuscule, teeny-tiny, yellow polka dot bikini version of what we do at Newsbeat. If you like this podcast... My guess is you'll like what we do over there. So obviously check show notes for the links or just search your favorite podcast or audio streaming app. Newsbeat. Two words. One love. It's your man, Many Faces. Thanks for checking us out. Peace. Now moving further into Facebook, we've got Kyle C. Said best episode of the series, talking about the third part. Didn't realize in detail how fucked up the Clintons were growing up. I love the 90s, but now see it's because I was primarily the one getting fucked over by some of these policies. Would love it if you made a clip of Michelle Alexander's second bit so it can be shared on here. I just thought of, you know, the pop-up shows? Like, I love the, you know, remember music video pop-ups from, like, the 80s? How many times has Billy Joel appeared before a real judge? And then they, like, there are all those, like, specials on VH1, like, I love the 90s. Yes. We should do, like, because Kyle said I love the 90s, but we should do our version <laughs> Which is like just all the I hate the nineties. Yeah. And it's just like talking heads being like, and then Bill Clinton did this. <laughs> like a little fun fact. It's so bad. That would be funny. It's so bad, except for me. It was a white guy. Nineties was so good. Sorry. Why don't you brag a little more? <laughs> I mean, really they were just built for me, right? A white guy from the suburbs. I should stop shitting all over the 90s. White guy from the suburbs. I'm rocking the suburbs. Yeah, that's what I was doing. Michael Jackson did. Rocking the suburbs. Said he was talented. Rocking the suburbs. (laughs) I like Uh, the version with William Shatner, even though he's a bad person. I know. Uh, It's like, hi, sorry to bother you. (laughs) I used to know the whole thing. (laughs) Talk about Ben Folds, people. Yeah, get with it. Okay. Evan P. I knew I didn't like Bill. Hell, I haven't actually liked any of the presidents who have served my lifetime. I used to think Clinton was okay because he ran a budget surplus. I have since learned that was not actually a good thing at all. It was not. And Chris M. said the thing that's always left out is Clinton only won because Ross Perot cracked Bush's vote. If it wasn't an instant runoff system, Perot's voters would have led to a Bush victory in the second round. Here's the states that would have flipped red. Georgia, Iowa, Kentucky, Louisiana, Missouri, Montana, Ohio... Tennessee handing Bush a sizable victory. I cannot dispute that, Chris M. I think that is a salient point. Probably should have done more. I I only had the one Perot clip in there because he was so prescient when it came to what was going to happen in NAFTA. That full debate on Larry King, by the way, is worth watching between Ross Perot and Al Gore. I don't, I don't, I didn't like Perot. I don't like Perot, but, you know, he was one of those really authentic, I'm a business person. 
we should run everything like a business. And when it came to stuff like that, he dropped a lot of truth bombs, but he's, he's not exactly somebody I would have wanted running really anything. But he had an interesting take on things. And I agree. It would have been the second term for Bush for sure. Uh, Perot hadn't gotten in there and muddied things up. It's interesting. Anyway, now let's move over to Twitter. Hey, 99, what did Berkey gal want us to know? So regarding Clinton number three, why weren't we more outraged at the time? I remember realizing that the disruption of welfare would be a problem, but somehow missed any protests. Media, no doubt, was complicit in the key questions that were never asked. So you had people like the beginning stages. I think Medea Benjamin from Code Pink was protesting at the time. Jesse Jackson was leading protests at the time. The protests were there, but they weren't widespread and they definitely weren't as covered. The media was just so fucking fixated on Clinton's sexual escapades and then all of his distractions like uh, Bosnia and Somalia and if, if anything teaches you that the mainstream media just never covers what's really, really going on, it was it was that era. More like the lamestream media, am I right? <laughs> lamestream. Definitely the lamestream media. Ugh. I saw there's a, I think I've talked about it before, there's a subreddit called Self-Aware Wolves, and it's when conservative people or religious people are like so close to getting it <laughs> and it was a it was a screenshot of a youtube clip of ben shapiro talking to a bunch of kids the person commenting was like i'm confused ben always talks about how liberal people are trying to like indoctrinate children and educate them like i thought he wouldn't want to talk to children guess he changed his mind and it's like you're always there you're so close I've, I've seen that clip of him talking and reading to kids and it's fucking disgusting I didn't well, obviously didn't watch it. It's disgusting. What do you read? He's talking. He's just talking about like you know freedom and liberty and you know. No, know, it wasn't an all... actual like kids book. It might have been. I'm sure like... Prigger you makes kids books. Oh, definitely, definitely. One time, my sister at band camp read to our preschool class. It was a book about pickles. It was like <laughs> a kids book about pickles. That's one, my memory. One time, I dressed up at as band camp, the cat in the hat, and read to my kids kindergarten class or pre-kindergarten class or something like that and had to leave the room because you were scary no i wasn't scary but i was i was all i almost had a stroke inside that fucking costume and i don't know how characters at any amusement park fans in there now it was so fucking hot and i almost and i almost passed out and then of course almost freaked out all the kids because i would have been like (laughs) were you in white face like sweaty messy no, it was like a full-on mask like in a hole. No, no, no. It was brutal. It was fucking awful. Ew. I thought that was a good idea. It wasn't. No. Yeah. Also, the cat in a hat. The cat cat in a hat. We've we've talked about the cat in the hat before. No, no. He's a home invader. Why are we letting him? It's extremely problematic. With our children. Yes, you're right. And where did Thing One and Thing Two come from? Where did he steal them from? I don't know. Where are their parents? I don't know. Well, that's why we've canceled Dr. Seuss, right? Yes, yes. specifically for that reason. Well, Will Watkins the Fourth, hold for it, said as recently as last week I was giving Bill a pass as being basically well-meaning in earnest, though I regarded him as the most dangerous modern American president. Perhaps he doesn't deserve even that charitable American view. president. <laughs> You've got, you got a little Christopher Walken there. There is no greater thrill on earth than meeting a Walken for the first time. Hi. Perhaps he doesn't deserve a charitable view. No, he doesn't. And um, 
Yeah, well-meaning and earnest. He had that down. That was like, that was his move, right? That was the, the bite the lip and, and squint and say, I, I feel your pain. Until it, until he really revealed himself later during Hillary's campaign as the He revealed himself? I uh, didn't say exposed himself. He, didn't, <laughs> he revealed his true nature during the campaign where he's like, black people should be thankful for everything that I did putting them behind bars. Ah! Fucking he asshole. had the suds. It wasn't his fault. The suds. It infected his brain. I don't feel like myself. If I had the suds, I'd have bubbles coming out of me. <laughs> Maybe you thought they were good citizens. She did. So, W. Jeremy D., I believe this is actually, there was a nice thread going on on Twitter replying to, to Will Watkins. So, W. Jeremy D. said, He always seemed like an affable good old boy, maybe a little behind the times. I also gave him more credit for bipartisan economic success than he deserved. After getting learned up again by Max, I've definitely had a change of heart. And Chaotic Leftist said, I really like UNFTR pod, very articulate critiques on neoliberalism. Thank you, Chaotic Leftist. Now over on Substack, the Ugandan weighed in saying what? Goodness gracious, Max. I really thought that part two was the tip of the iceberg. Hearing about Clinton at Stone Mountain and then his determination in killing the Welfare Act has made me understand what a terrible leader he was. That Stone Mountain bit is really terrifying. I mean, yes, the optics are shitty, but man, I think the piece that got me in Robinson's book was when he was talking about the Klan picnics. They used to have Klan picnics at Stone Mountain, and they only ended a year before he was there taking that photo op. Just stunning stuff. Anyway, thanks to Uganda for writing in. Now let's talk about some coffee donations because got a lot of support for the show. Now, Nathan Surst bought us two coffees. Nathan thought he was a little harsh on us, but said, hey, I learn a lot from you. Just sometimes it's hard to have your foundation rocked the way you do each week. Nathan Surst, you keep bringing the heat and keep holding our feet to the fire. I love it every time you do. Don't don't even worry about it. But thanks for the coffee. Spartacus Sanders bought five coffees. I absolutely love this podcast. I discovered it last November. Perfect blend of education and entertainment. I try to sell it to as many people I think are open to it, and even some that aren't. Spartacus said, Manny Faces is the man. Soundboard maestro. And 99 is awesome. I love the snarkiness and has the cutest voice in podcasting, especially when you laugh. I love when you laugh. That <laughs> makes me... I don't know. It just makes me smile when I listen back to the episodes and something tickles you funny. Because I'm laughing at you? Well, usually, yeah. <laughs> now, Dana E. bought three Where coffees. Where did you get an E from? I'm looking at the three and I'm transposing it. Okay? <laughs> I have an issue. Dana bought three coffees and said, just finished listening for the second time to the Bill Clinton episode, part two, Electric Boogaloo. Oh, what a great throwback, Dana. Thank you. First off, this episode was fascinating. Manny, the music you wove in around Jesse Jackson's speech was incredibly uplifting, very moving. These coffees are for you. 99, thank you for the sticker. It's on my laptop, Max. You got to stop moaning about how old you are. We're the same age. And you're bringing me down, man. I hope you guys have a restful and joyful vacation. Going to use the break to re-listen to some of the back catalog. All the best, Dana in New Hampshire. Thank you. Brian V is now a member who found us via David Pakman and hey, Young Turks. 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 <laughs> I said T-U-R-T. A T-Y-T fucker and I a pet fucker. I said tur- like turtle by accident. It's okay. Do you think we should make a show called The Young Turks and it's just about <laughs> baby turtles? Sure. You know, that when makes you feel good. When they're like, they, they go to the ocean. It's adorable. Have you ever seen Moana? Yeah, of course. She's, when she, at the beginning when she's a baby and she shields the little baby turtle with a leaf so it can get to the ocean. Makes me cry. 
I love little baby Moana. She's like, ah. I swam with giant turtles on a vacation once. Did they talk to you? They did not. One of them was missing a leg. Oh. And we said to the boat captain, hey, that guy's missing a leg. And he said, well, it's shark's favorite food and there's just a ton of them around oh, here. Why'd he say that? As we were in the water. Oh. Yeah. Thought that was like really dicey. It was magical swimming with them. Then he dropped that little bit of knowledge on us. And then moments later, one of the other instructors from the boat signaled to everybody in the water. He's like, all right, come on back in now, folks. And we'd only been in there for a few minutes. And it was really, I mean, swimming with these turtles was life-changing. I mean, it was incredible. He's like, all right, come on back in, folks. And we're like, what's going on? He's like, yep, come on back in right now. And we all hopped back on the boat. And then we saw the sharks circling after that. And it was fucking terrifying. So I'll never do that again. Anyway. I don't think we're supposed to swim with animals. I agree. Like dolphins, like they don't want that. I agree. I want to hug a dolphin really badly. Me too. But I don't think we're supposed to. Like, we're not supposed to ride elephants. They're never treated well. Right. Uh, my biggest dream. I My lease is up on my elephant this month, and I'm not I'm not going to renew it. Okay, good. Yeah. My biggest dream is to hug a polar bear. I know it'll no, never happen. It would definitely eat you. I don't know. You. Some polar bears look really nice. They do. But, like, don't you think it would give such a good hug? Sure. Like, like a literal bear hug. Yeah. You don't want to hug a black bear because you're racist? Oh my god, no. What's Why would you say that? Because you're like, oh, I only want to hug the white well, the bears. Well, polar bears look like clouds. So it's about softness. Oh, I see. I love all bears. Okay. I just feel like the polar bears, I don't know, their environment's melting. Maybe I could like, mm -hmm. uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, when you like... Help push no when you like uh you're fanning it you know you you're, <laughs> we're playing charades it's like when you make yourself something Can to I them buy a vowel a i'm giving it a vowel. <laughs> when you like i'm blanking to them mm -hmm. what is it what's the word gesturing no signaling like maybe i can moving not, in with one not humanize but like maybe i could make them like mansplain me. no there's a word i'm looking for i'm i'm allowing you to mansplain the word that's missing like make them like me make love to you Ew. You want to make love to a polar bear? I mean, what is going on with you? you what, what's You're that? really... Can you help me with the word? I, I don't have it for you. When you, like, do you, like... Indoctrinate. Sort of, but, like, if I was, like, meeting a new person, or if, let's say, if someone didn't like me, mm -hmm. and I was, like... Ingratiate. I, no, that's... that's. I think I said that before, but, like... Inculcate. No. It's, if someone didn't like you, and you were, like, maybe I can blank myself to them. Like... Try not to hate the number eight, inculcate, it's in excess. Okay, well, whatever. I don't think you guys know what I mean. said inculcate. And I just want polar bears to like me, and maybe I could make them my friends. And, or, or, you know what? Never mind. No, I don't want to do it anymore. Now I'm mad. Okay. Okay, well, Brian V, I, I didn't finish. Their favorite episodes are MMT and the isms. Oh, that's great. And they miss the skits. Oh, I know. I'm working on it. SPED teacher is now a member. A big thank you for all that you do from sunny Seattle. <laughs> the snobby, but appropriately snobby, coffee connoisseurs, which is why I hope people really hear me when I say all of your kind to nature and humans coffee rock so buy it. Hugs. P.S. Loved your Amazon app and how he's destroying Seattle. P.S.S. Found you through Swage. P.S.S.S. I think it's supposed to be P.P.P.S. Mm -hmm. Fuck M.F. Fuck Bezos and fuck Clinton now. 
<laughs> the teacher just doesn't want to wait. <laughs> Fuck them now. I love it. Strider M is now a member. Hi there. You guys have amazing content, so I'd like to support you even if it's only a little. Thank you. Yeah. And the Daily Greed is now a member, and wow. I don't understand. Daily Greed, please write in. Came here from the skeptic rat via the New York Times naming you the five necessary podcasts to save democracy. Stayed for the coffee, jam bins, and great content. What do you need to be Well, explained? because the skeptic rat's another podcast. I yes. looked that up. Okay. So first, send us the episode. Secondly, the New York Times did not name us the five best podcasts to save democracy. We were the eight podcasts to listen to in post-Trump America. That's right. So but we were listed with Skeptocrat, so he probably became a Skeptocrat listener oh. and a UNFTR listener. Yes. What was Skeptocrat on there? Yep. Yep. I think Know Your Enemy, Pantsuit Politics, Skeptocrat, oh. Us. Um, well, I was the hoping there was a secret New York Times article that named us the five best podcasts to save democracy. That would also be great. So, but we can't, listen, listen, we can't so, be Gavones well, here. Well, Daily Greed, I'm going to be greedy. Okay. Can you make the New York Times write that article about us? Yeah, hey, everybody, start writing into the New York Times and or say, no, cover them again. pick someone better. Aren't yeah. we mad at the New York Times? Yeah, write to the Jacobin and tell them these guys, are, they're awesome. Yeah, write to, okay. write to... The Congressional Library. And the Daily Wire. What Definitely about, tell Ben Shapiro that we this can is the do, best show. Should we do like Scientology does and have all of our podcasts like on gold plates? Oh, is that a thing? Yeah. So they have this like really, they have this like house. Mm -hmm. Well, they have multiple houses I think I've talked about before because they think L. Ron Hubbard's coming back to life. So they're ready for him. Like people come and like change the sheets, replace the flowers in uh -huh. case, in case when he, sorry, not in case, when, when he comes back. Yep. But there's also this like other compound mm. and the whole thing there is to make sure that all of his literature and speeches, all the tech, as they call it, mm. is preserved. Mm. So they have like have it all engraved on these like gold discs, like all these. It's actually scary because if like the world did end, that's what I honestly think would it find. would survive. <laughs> like the amount of different copies of shit they have. His work is going to outlive all of us. So huh. maybe we do that. Did they borrow that from uh, the Mormons with, uh, <laughs> with Joseph, Joseph Smith's Smith? tablets? Well, no, because those were fake. <laughs> oh, right. That's right, too. Someone just mm. wrote in, um, Aaron H., my friend, he wrote in and said that I, I mentioned Mormonism. And you said, because I said, I was talking about Under the Banner of Heaven. Mm -hmm. And uh, he suggests we unfuck that because, like, there's so much there and sent a bunch of resources. He Love sent it. it in as we were writing. And I was like... Can't wait to answer back and be like, well, <laughs> I would love to. I'm fascinated. Yeah. I would like, I wouldn't mind committing our work to uh, gold tablets. and But I think we should bury it in the basement of McFleshman's uh, in Out of Gamey. That's fun. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully after the apocalypse, it'll still be standing in some of the Yeah, we need to make too. sure there's like a bomb shelter. Yeah. Where's our closest bomb shelter? To here? Yeah. Um, maybe out in uh, all the way on the end of uh, Long Island by uh, Montauk where they, right? Oh, where the Stranger the Things? Stranger Things stuff, right? Is Madison Square Garden a bomb shelter? They probably have one, right? I would imagine. I would imagine. I don't really wouldn't want to be stuck like Kurt Russell in the city though, right? Escape from New York. I don't, I don't know if I want to be stuck in Manhattan proper. I don't think it's going to matter. Wherever we are. Maybe we should just go to Jersey, right? Because if anything's going to make it through the apocalypse like a fucking cockroach, it's going to be New Jersey. So mean. Well, you know, just speaking the truth here. Why do we hate New Jersey more than we hate Staten Island? 
Staten Island is part of New York, whether we like it or not. But it's basically Jersey. It's right there. It's the closest thing we have to New Jersey, and it is the gateway to New Jersey. And I think that's probably Jersey's fault. Like, Staten Island was probably pretty cool until they built the bridges to New Jersey, and then it just sort of, like, brought that element over, you know? Mm. Just saying. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. Listen, thanks for hanging today, 99. Yeah. This is the penultimate before our vacation. But I'll see you in the studio to record... Or quickie for this weekend. Yeah, but then he doesn't talk to me because we don't we don't like each other. We're like, hmm? we're like. Um, what does that even mean? Fam- I'm trying to think of famous co-stars who hate each other. Uh, the Everly Brothers. What? Yep. Actually, Couldn't all all brothers, other. Ray Davies and Dave Davies of the Kinks. Oh no. Noel and Liam. Well, yeah, famously assholes. Yeah, they're just the worst. But they're also the worst. They people. were, but they were like babies. They're, the fame went the to their heads. People. No, I think that they're probably fine now. The Gallagher's. Yeah, they're terrible people. Why? Period. End of story. But Oasis is so good. Yeah, for an album. No, they have. They, they, what are you talking they, about? It's an, an album, no. and they basically just you know ripped Multi- everybody off. A lot of their albums are good. Please, most of them are good. Like, a good friend of mine is like thinks that they're the greatest band that ever I didn't played. Say that. Just, the, the, then I just can't. I'm tolerate just a it. fan. I hear you. Well, what other famous siblings? Uh, famous siblings or no, just famous well, duos in general? Are you suggesting that, that we don't love each other off the microphone? I just thought it would be fun to plant that seed. Oh, that's insane. No, don't plant that seed. That no, makes me sad. No, it's not insane. We don't use that word here. Sorry. That's over-caffeinated. That yes. makes me sad. Don't do that. Don't do that. We talk every day. No, sometimes you don't talk to me. What? <laughs> At least by a slack or a text or a something? I know. I'm just kidding. Come on. Can't live without you, 99. He says that, but I don't believe it. Here's how. Here's how much. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Uh, one of my kids said to me recently, "We were talking about moving oh, someday." You told, yeah, you told. And story. I told you that, yeah. right? Did I tell on fuckers that? Yeah, you did. And she, they, she suggested it's okay. Ninety nine can come too, right? Yeah. I mean, because they know. Like, I, I can't. I know. You I can't could be making. You. you might not even have kids. <laughs> I've never. I don't know your real name. <laughs> I don't know your birthday. I've never met your family. I've never even seen photos of them. I'm Max. I'm old. They might not even be real. I'm not that old. Eh, You're like 82, right? Something like that. Okay. Well, I think we should go. All right. I'll see you next time. I guess. Bye. Bye. Bye.